The reading today is from Colossians 3, verses 1 to 17. You have been raised to life with Christ. Now set your heart on what is in heaven, where Christ rules at God's right side. You died, which means that your life is hidden with Christ, who sits beside God. Christ gives meaning to your life, and when he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Don't be controlled by your body. Kill every desire for the wrong kind of sex. Don't be immoral or indecent or have evil thoughts. Don't be greedy, which is the same as worshipping idols. God is angry with people who disobey him by doing these things. And that is exactly what you did when you lived among people who behaved in this way. But now you must stop doing such things. You must stop being angry, hateful and evil. You must no longer say insulting or cruel things about others and stop lying to each other. You have given up your old way of life with its habits. Each of you is now a new person. You are becoming more and more like your creator and you will understand him better. It doesn't matter if you are a Greek or a Jew or if you are circumcised or not. You may even be a barbarian or a Scythian and you may be a slave or a free person. Yet Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. God loves you and has chosen you as his own special people. So be gentle, kind, humble, meek and patient. Put up with each other and forgive anyone who does you wrong, just as Christ has forgiven you. Love is more important than anything else. It is what ties everything completely together. Each one of you is part of the body of Christ, and you are chosen to live together in peace. So let the peace that comes from Christ control your thoughts and be grateful. Let the message about Christ completely fill your lives while you use your wisdom to teach and instruct each other. With thankful hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. Whatever you say or do should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, as you give thanks to God the Father because of him. As Michael comes up, um, uh, we found out last night that Michael's a bit of a trickster. Graham called Michael last night to make sure there was anything he didn't need in advance of the sermon, and he, Michael answers the phone, oh, we're away on holiday. You should have seen Graham's face. It just looked like, oh my gosh, all the water's drained out of my body. (laughs) Um, But Michael uh, is here. So we're very grateful for Michael's support, um, both to us personally and also as a church. Obviously, West Hamilton was where we used to meet. Uh, West Hamilton's almost kind of also like an unofficial sister church. Um, And so, yeah, we're really grateful for the support that West Hamilton has has been to us. Uh, And Michael is also the, what's your official title, Michael, is the, like, it's, it's worse than bishop. Second in command. Second in command. Come on up. <laughs> He's uh, second in command of the bishop. Is it the bishop general or something? The vicar general. The vicar general. So um, he was kind of running the show while Jay was away. Jay, the bishop, uh, was away for three months on sabbatical. So um, we have a very esteemed person in our presence. So let me just pray for you. Thank you, Father, for Michael. Thank you for the way he has come to serve us this morning to preach your word. We ask that you would uh, speak to him, speak through him, minister to us through his words. Bless him and anoint him, and we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thanks. Well, thanks, Sarah. And it is lovely to be with you today. I haven't been with you for a few years, actually. I was working out it was when you were up at Tuakaramia Road at St. Clair's that I... Uh, was last with you, but we've certainly followed your journey uh, with enthusiasm and um, we're very excited uh, that you've got this place. It's brilliant, isn't it? When you've got it. Um, I realise next week you won't, but it's fantastic. And it's just wa- great to be part of a wider church family, the diocese. I know these are all strange names, diocese, vestry and all that, but 
they, they do have significance. We've grown from 12 parishes to 17 now, and next week we will be inducting, that's another strange word, um, Malcolm Falunan as the minister in charge of the Auckland Anglican Mission. So things, God's moving, and a lot of us are small churches, but as Sarah says, that has the benefit of being a group who can be tight and who can really live out the gospel and be accountable to one another. So uh, it's great to be with you this morning, and we're going to look at uh, Colossians chapter 3. Now, I've got a new Bible this morning, which um, I've waited for for about nine months because of the COVID thing. And the trouble with the new Bible is that nothing's where you thought it was or where it used to be in the, in the old Bible. So I may have to uh, go fishing at times. But I want to talk about uh, this passage from Colossians, which is rather similar to Ephesians, actually. I don't know if you've ever... Uh, do, you, do you read whole books at a time? You know, do you sit down and read a whole epistle? takes about five minutes, you know. When you used to get uh, letters from someone who was courting you, did you used to read the first page and put them away, and the next day you would read the second page, and the next day, no, you, you read the whole letter, so it's not a bad idea. It takes about five minutes to read Colossians out loud, and if you read Colossians and Ephesians, you'll find they're both similar in shape. The first half is the theory, and the second half is the practice. So theology and praxis, if you're into those sorts of terms. And you really can't start, as we did at chapter 3, you've got to uh, at least glance back and see where Paul's coming from, and then you understand better what he says. So I'm going to quickly give an overview of the first two chapters, and then we'll get into chapter 3. But I'm also going to get my watch. I had it somewhere. I know, but I can't see it. I know you'll be watching it, so... I was told an hour and a half, um, so I'll stick to the half or, or a bit less. So Paul, believe it or not, had never been to Colossae, so he'd never met these people. He tells us this in chapter uh, 2, I think it is. He says, I'm wanting to you and others who I have never seen face to face. We think of Paul writing to churches that he's planted. He's their senior pastor, if you like, but not the Colossians, a guy called Epaphras who's with Paul, he is the one who planted this church. It's in uh, what we'd call Western Turkey today, just a few k's below Laodicea. And Laodicea is mentioned at the end of this letter where Paul says, make sure they read this letter and make sure you swap and read the letter that I wrote to them. And if you want a good PhD topic uh, in theology, find the letter to the Laodiceans. Uh, Some people believe they've found bits of it. But no one's really very convinced yet. But there's a letter out there somewhere that has yet to be found. So he didn't plant this church. So when he says uh, to them things like, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, he's in a sense writing in a general way. He doesn't know much specifically. Now you think about the letter to the Corinthians, for example. He knows a lot about Corinth. And what a sleazy place it is. And he can really get into them and say, you're doing this and you're doing that. But not the Colossians. He actually starts off giving thanks and praise to them for the good reports he's heard. Presumably from Epaphras. He says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. That's a lovely opening, isn't it? 
If I come to you and say, I've heard from Jay and from others of your faith and your love, you'd think that I wouldn't have much bad to say about you. And you'd be right. And same with the Colossians. Paul has nothing but good to say about them in terms of encouraging them. But he still has a burden, he says. And he says it's a burden he has for everyone, whether he's met them face to face or not. And that is to warn them and to teach them. Why would he want to do that? They're going okay, but they need warning and teaching. Well, the reason is the same as we need teaching today. It's because there are people out there who will try to draw you away from the gospel. And often they can be quite devious and quite subtle. They can be people within the church. False teachers, they're called. We don't use anything as strong as that, but they're out there. They carefully alter the gospel. They lessen it. They weaken it. They water it down. Or they introduce things that actually aren't necessary. And this seems to have been a particular concern of Paul's because he talks about people who introduce the importance of ceremonies or want to pull them back to some of the old ways. You've got to do this and you've got to do that. He's saying those things aren't important. Don't let people deceive you. And often those things distract you from what God really wants you to do. So Paul is concerned that people aren't, as he says, deluded or drawn away by empty arguments. And a lot of those in our generation, in our age, they come from psychology and sociology. We have all sorts of people outside the church who are saying that they have better news than the gospel. And the good news is you don't have to worry about all those things that you meant to make you feel guilty. You've got complete freedom to do anything as long as you're supposedly not hurting anyone else. Well, Paul would call those empty, deceitful arguments because they look good, but they're ultimately deceptive. They'll hurt you in the long run. They'll hurt society in the long run. And I think we're seeing that today. So Paul's concern is, firstly, that you might be drawn away from the true gospel. But he has a second concern, and that is that there might be no real transformation in your life. Now just think about that for a moment. You come to faith in Christ, but nothing in your life really changes. Do we see that today? People who come to faith. You could almost say that about the whole church in a way, couldn't you? Because if our lives change dramatically, people would notice. And yet I don't see too many people out there saying, wow, Christians become so different when they come to Christ. And that's sad, isn't it? That people aren't drawn by the change that they see in us. Now, I think there are changes in people that they don't want to see or that they ignore the world. But the fact is, if we were that radically different, they would notice, and they certainly did in the early church. I'm going to give you a quote in a minute, which talks about that. So how are we changed when we come to Christ? Well, Paul likes the image, doesn't he, of dying to the old, dying with Christ in baptism, and then being raised with Christ to new life. He talks about 
being redeemed from the world of darkness and coming into the world of light. He uses the image of one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and now the kingdom of God. And that's a radical transformation. It's not just a change of direction, but it's a completely new self, a new identity. And what Paul comes to in this chapter that we're on to today in chapter 3 is he's basically saying, be the new person you're meant to be. You know, if there's really been a change, let's see it in your lives. And he's got some uh, three suggestions here, or commands if you like. Firstly, he says, look up. Look up and seek the things that are above. Secondly, set your minds on them. And thirdly, put to death or put off the old self. Luther had a a saying about baptism. You know, in baptism we say the old man, the old Adam dies. Luther said the trouble is the old Adam tends to be a very good swimmer. So you put him down, but he keeps popping up. And that's true, isn't it, for all of us. So this is a process. We look up, we set our minds, and we put to death or put off the things of the past. Now, you've all heard of St. Augustine, I imagine, Augustine of Hippo. He was ahead of all modern psychiatry and psychology. And that he said a very wise thing. He says it's as simple, human behaviour is as simple as this, he says. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Okay, so what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind will then justify. And I think that's similar to what Paul's saying. When he says, look up and seek the things that are above, he's saying, get your desires right. First of all, stop desiring that which is not good for you. But desire the things of the kingdom, things of eternal worth, things that are pure and noble and good. Think of the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Where did that start? Eve saw the fruit and she saw that it was desirable. Desire is the first thing. Then the will needs to be exercised. And then once we decide what we want, we are masters at justifying it. We find good reasons. And didn't Eve and Adam find a good reason why they should eat the fruit? See, Satan was smart. He knew that if he could undermine their reasoning... Attack the mind. Draw the desire. And then the will would follow. So the order is not that important. But the three things work together. Paul says, first get your desires right. Seek the things that are above. Then set your minds on them. In other words, remember that the things that are above are the good things for you. They are the things that lead to eternal life. And that's why he puts so much emphasis on the word, on the apostolic teaching, on making sure that they are continuing faithful and steadfast in what they've heard. It's because that will guard their mind, and the mind will then guard the heart, and then the will won't be a problem. 
So get your desires right. Get your head in the right space. Listen to God's word. Understand the gospel. Understand the mystery of the gospel, Paul says. And it's a crazy message, isn't it? The idea of God coming as one of us, humbling himself, being crucified, being killed. You need spiritual insight to understand how that is victory. But once you do understand it, once you see how Christ has indeed triumphed, and that's fixed in your mind, then these other things lose their temptation. Because you know your future depends on what Christ has done. If you want to enjoy eternal life, you need to stay on course. Paul doesn't hold back. He says when he lists some of the bad things that we get into, that because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon us. Not a a message we like to hear, but it's true. If we want the eternal life that's ours in Christ, then we need to keep our eyes fixed on him. And hold on to what he has done. When we do that, says Paul, the result is that we guard our unity. Now unity is something that often we think we need to create. But you know, unity is actually a gift from God. We are united simply by being in Christ. It's the answer to Jesus' prayer. Remember in John 15, he prays, Father, make them one. God gives us the unity. It's we who bring the division. And the sins that Paul lists, and he's never exhaustive in his list of sins, they focus on the things that divide. Firstly, sexuality. Believe it or not, that divides people. Doesn't it today? And then he talks about sins of the tongue, slander, malicious talk, lying. He says, these are the things that are going to break the unity that God has given to you. You've got to avoid them. Put them off, he says, like dirty rags. And in fact, when the uh, early church, they baptized people, they literally used to change their clothes. They would strip down to their underwear. They would go through the baptism pool or whatever. And when they came out, they were clothed with a new white robe, a symbol that they'd put on. Christ. They died with Christ. They'd risen with Christ. They'd put on the new self. Paul says, if you put those things away, then you will preserve the unity that God has given you. He's already made you one. Make sure you stay one. And that's why he gives these funny references to neither Jew nor Greek. And he talks about even Scythians, I think your translation said Corinthians, They were considered the worst of the barbarians, the most immoral. He says, their ethnicity, once you're in Christ, you've put off that stuff. You are one with everybody else in Christ. No other distinctions can trump those. And so unity is uh, both given, but it's also the result of that sort of godly behavior that you're meant to be into now. And then he talks about the characteristics which you need to put on. And a list that's very similar to that in Philippians chapter 2. Remember Philippians chapter 2? Paul says, stop these divisions amongst yourselves. He says, have the mind of Christ. And what's the mind of Christ? Even though he was 
one, he was equal with God, he emptied himself of everything so that he would come and die for us. That wonderful line in that hymn of Wesley's, he emptied himself of all but love. And that's what Paul says is the ultimate test. It's complete selflessness, isn't it? This is what the world doesn't understand about love. It's complete selflessness. It's actually sacrificing your life for somebody else. For no hope of gain. That sort of love, says Paul, must be your starting point, And then you will be compassionate. You will be kind. You will do the things that he lists uh, in this chapter in the second part. And when you do those things, he says, the peace of Christ will also rule in your hearts. Again, peace is a gift from God. That great chorus, peace, perfect peace. It's a gift of Christ our Lord. There was no peace apart from knowing what it is to be in Christ and from receiving reconciliation through what he's done on the cross. And then he closes by saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Back to the mind. When you know the word, when you know the truth, that will guard your heart and your decision making. You won't be easily pulled away by Satan's temptations. It's a wonderful, practical passage. It's about putting off and putting on. We can all understand that, can't we? It's about setting our minds and our hearts on the things that belong to Christ. Things of eternal value and not being deceived by those who would have some other truth. It's a pretty uncompromising passage, isn't it? Well, I think it is. I think it's incredibly uncompromising. The trouble is that the world, Satan, will try to convince us that there's an easier way. Let me read to you. Have you, any of you read The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis's uh, allegory? He actually wrote that in response uh, to William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And he says in the preface to The Great Divorce, or in the edition I have, that he doesn't actually really understand Blake, and I don't blame him. I think Blake's a funny guy. You've seen his paintings? Very strange. But he says this. He says... Um, in some sense or other the attempt to make that marriage the marriage between heaven and hell is perennial so he's talking about what Paul's talking against you can't mix darkness and light you can't have the gospel but then listen to to the wisdom of the world that's the marriage of heaven and hell and Lewis says that marriage or the attempt to make that marriage is perennial the attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either-or. That granted skill and patience, and above all time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found. That mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without our being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. Lewis says, I believe this is a disastrous mistake. 
You can take all the luggage with you. Sorry, you cannot take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. If we keep insisting, sorry, if we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. I think that's very true. Uh, Tom Wright put it more succinctly, there is to be no gentle, half-hearted approach to such things, no toying with them as continuing possibilities. They are like vermin that mustn't be allowed into the house in case they poison the food or the water supply. They are not to be pitied. They are to be killed off and put to death. So you either look up or you're open to the things you see around you. There is no compromise, no two ways. There is only one way, the narrow way. Does it make sense? It doesn't? Well, the trouble is that Paul says, unless we have the mind of Christ, we can't grasp the things of Christ. That's what the gift, the spiritual gift of knowledge actually is. People use the the term a gift of knowledge as if it's a prophetic gift. Knowing what's going on in someone's heart is actually a prophetic gift. It's not a gift of knowledge. God's not going to tell you things about other person except as a prophetic gift. That's what we see at the woman in the well, isn't it, in John 4? When Jesus told her about it, what did she say? I see you are a prophet. Prophets see into people's lives. The gift of knowledge is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians when he says only with the spiritual, only with the spirit can you understand spiritual things. So God's hidden mystery, as Paul talks about it, can only be appreciated by those who are in Christ. And that's because the victory won't be revealed till the end. That was so with Christ. Christ was humiliated on the cross and the evil, the world thought they'd won. It was only with the resurrection that the tables were turned and as Paul says in this epistle, Satan was humiliated and shamed. And so it will be for us. If we are humble, if we love each other as what seem like fragile communities, the world will never praise us. They will mock us. We will seem weak, we who lay our lives down for others. It doesn't make sense in the flesh. But when Christ returns, says Paul, then what's hidden will be revealed. Then we will be vindicated and the powers of evil will be humiliated and destroyed once and for all. So that should be our motive. That should be our motive. As we seek the things that are above, we look to things eternal. We look beyond this life. And we say the struggles we go through here are worth it. Because one day we will be vindicated. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all that you have done in your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has indeed broken the power of Satan over our lives. We thank you that we have been reconciled to you. We pray now 
that you will indeed make these words of Paul true for us. That our hearts might be set on the things that are above. That our minds might be rooted in your word. And that our wills will be submitted in obedience to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We got